This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Insecurities listeners know that we like to get in the weeds. We'll often spend 30 minutes rooting around in thorny policy and rulemaking issues, but every once in a while, we like to take a step back and catch everyone up on some of the topics and trends playing out in the securities regulatory and enforcement world. This week, we're going to hit on a few hot button issues you may be following, like ESG, crypto, complex products, and Chris's favorite, Reg BI. We're fortunate to have with us on the show today, Mark Sheff, a senior reporter at Investment News, and he's going to help us make sense of it all today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my needs-to-be-corrected co-host, Kurt Wolf. Kurt, I believe you misspoke and said it was my favorite topic to discuss Reg BI. I think that's actually incorrect. <laughs> we can go back and change the record on that. You know, Chris, usually you just dish it straight to me and let me say it's good to be with you. And this time you just, you grab the mic. That, that's okay. No, we are going to get plenty of Reg BI because it's a big deal, mm-hmm. man. It, it's the second anniversary, the second birthday of Reg BI. So obviously we have to talk about it, but I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Right. I'm actually excited just to kind of take a step back and talk about some of the hot topics that people are writing about, reading about, thinking about, in, instead of doing some of the more narrowly focused episodes that we've done lately. So this is going to be a cool chance to catch everybody up. I'm really excited to have Mark on the show today. I've gotten to know Mark a little bit over the past couple of years. We've been fortunate to work on a, on a couple of projects together. His reporting really sits at the intersection of policy and politics. So the perfect mm-hmm. guy to come on the show today and, and talk through some of these issues with us. But before we dive into them, Chris, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about Mark? Mark Sheff Jr., is a senior reporter at Investment News, where he covers legislation and regulations affecting retail investment advisors and brokers. Mark is a member of the National Press Club Board. Before migrating to the editorial side of the journalism ecosystem, he served as press secretary for the late Senator Richard Luger of Indiana and as director of external relations for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank in Washington. Mark is also a diehard fan of DC sports. That's the Washington football team, the Wizards, the Capitals, and the Nationals. And Mark, I'd hate to put you on the spot here, but knowing what time of year we're in here in late May and early June, do the numbers 19 and 31 mean anything to you? <laughs> this is not the year the Nats are going to storm back <laughs> from right. from being 12 games under at Memorial Day because the we have far less talent than we did in 2019. <laughs> that's, that's not uh, a hot take, Mark. I think that's a unanimously accepted opinion. <laughs> right. So we are, we are rebuilding. I just mm-hmm. hope that we are not so slow in the rebuilding process that Juan Soto loses faith mm-hmm. and uh, departs. That's what we're all watching for now. This is going to be a long, 
painful Nat season. Chris and Kurt, it's good to be with you guys. Thank you so much for this invitation. Let me just say one thing about my bio. In addition to the Washington teams, I have become a diehard Packer fan Mm. through marriage, Mm. through the the transitive property of (laughs) Packer fandom. My (laughs) wife grew up in Green Bay, and now I am a true, true Packer fan uh, to my core. I think they call them cheeseheads, Mark. You're a big cheesehead now. Well, I maybe I don't quite qualify as a cheesehead <laughs> having grown up in Indiana, but I am definitely a Packer fan. Which probably makes your Sundays a, a little better than maybe they were before you got married. Before the marriage. <laughs> the commanders are, interestingly enough, the commanders are not going to be as big a disaster this year as the Nats. Hmm. Wow. But There's your hot take, Chris. Right. <laughs> you know, we're, we're glad to have you, Mark. I actually should have mentioned up top that in, in addition to coming on the podcast today, you are a regular guest on the Investment News Podcast. And I, I think you recently actually sort of stepped up your role and uh, you sat in as a co-host for, for Bruce Kelly when Jeff Benjamin was, was out on vacation. Um, yes, right. Exactly. We talked about crypto and 401ks. I, yes. Hey, I think we're going to talk about some of that today. Don't don't call yeah. it a segue. For, <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for those listeners who don't know the podcast, check it out. It's the Investment News Podcast. We featured it on an episode of this show way back in December 2020. It was episode wow. 28. Wow. We had we had actually had Jeff Benjamin on the show. But yeah. while we're talking about crypto and 401ks, Chris, why don't you just help us slide right into our first topic? Yeah, I mean, no one in the financial markets knows anything about crypto. It's never been covered. No one has ever talked about it. But we're going to demystify, decryptify crypto today with you, Mark. You know, regardless of what our listeners might think about the use of cryptocurrencies, their place in the market for, for payments or for investment or how they're being viewed by regulators, it kind of seems that the the horse has left the barn as it relates to crypto. It is out there. It is an investment product from a variety of different angles. Kurt, please don't uh, come down with me on the disclaimer about how to describe crypto as an investment. But we'll talk here about exactly, Mark, what you just brought up, about that 401k, that retirement investment angle for crypto. And the big development in recent weeks, Fidelity, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, announced a digital assets account product that's being folded in with the rest of its retirement investment services. So, Mark, help us understand what is what is Fidelity talking about here and how might it impact its investors and the market at large? Right. Well, Chris, what, what Fidelity has done is develop a, a product that it puts on its 401k platform that its clients can, can access. Fidelity is the Correct me if I'm wrong, it is the biggest record keeper, right, in the plan space. So you have this behemoth 401k administrator, Fidelity, putting on its platform the the digital assets account, which allows a plan sponsor, a company, to use it in their core investment menu. And that means that the employees of that company, the plan participants, can, through that account, allocate a certain amount of their retirement savings to crypto. And the the limit is is 20%. And so this is how crypto is, is being offered to, or can be offered, starting this summer when the product actually rolls out, to potentially millions of retirement savers. 
And this has, so Fidelity says it's it's responding to uh, market interest, that is interest from plan participants, from retirement savers, to invest in crypto. Certainly crypto has been enormously popular, and as far as I can tell, still is, even though it's been dropping precipitously over the last few weeks. It is still the shiny object, and, and, and Fidelity has jumped in. So this creates a, an interesting situation because at heart, what I really enjoy is, is, is politics. And this is a political situation. Yes, it involves cryptocurrency. Yes, it involves retirement savings. But what this really is, is a political battle. Because on one side, you have the DOL, which, which put out a compliance assistant, assistance release weeks before Fidelity rolled out its, its product. And in that compliance assistance release, the DOL warned planned fiduciaries to use, quote, extreme care, end quote, when, when offering crypto options for its planned participants. And then you have Fidelity jumping in and saying, hey, the water's fine jump in. So you have DOL versus Fidelity, and as, la- and as recently as last Thursday, uh, Thursday, uh, May 19th, at the Insured Retirement Institute Conference, annual conference in Washington, Ali Kawar, the acting head of the Employee Benefits Security Administration, said that after his talks with Fidelity, about Fidelity's safeguards in this account, he is still not comfortable with them. And he said he definitely doesn't feel, I asked him, do you feel better or worse or about the same? And his answer to that question was, I definitely don't feel better. I'm not sure if I f- feel worse and and maybe I feel the same. So anyway, look at my story. I, I have the exact quote in the story. But anyway, uh, so you've got, you've got advice, you've got a plan fiduciaries and and the investment the financial advisors that work with them between uh, a rock DOL and a hard place fidelity and they have to decide who who they're going to listen to as we go forward with crypto and retirement accounts and I think it's fascinating this to me mark might be one of those watershed or tip, tipping point moments when we look back a few years from now of crypto going mainstream right mm-hmm. this is a, another kind of avenue by which the average investor, and obviously doing air quotes around that, or one with access to Fidelity's right. 401k platform, can the same way they might want to, you know, reallocate their retirement funds to, you know, growth stocks right. or international-based businesses or any of the other, you know, products that have been developed over time. We're now jumping into that that crypto world, that that much maligned kind of Reddit and ape-focused uh, investment, which obviously brings a whole new level of scrutiny and a whole new level of potential volatility or or potential gain. Are there other investment companies out there pursuing crypto products for a 401k or a retirement savings angle? Not not that I've noticed. I mean, not not who have made announcements about new products, but sources I've talked to have said that, that a lot of thought is being put into into crypto offerings because Fidelity has has led the way. In other words, these other companies can't be left behind. Now that Fidelity has moved, the rest of the market really is under pressure to move with it. So I've heard from sources who've said other companies are definitely thinking hard about this. I just haven't seen any announcements of new products. That's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with Chris, this could be a sort of a tipping point. And so it'll be interesting to see who falls where. But I understand why maybe there is some reluctance from some of these institutions to come out publicly and say, 
these are our plans, you know, here's, here's what we're going to do. Is, right. is there anything that we've heard or that, or that you can tell us about the broader market reaction? Are investor advocacy groups speaking up? Are some, maybe some other politicians speaking, speaking up about this? Sure. What, what are you hearing? Well, there's a, there's, believe it or not, a partisan divide on this. No. I know that's hard to imagine. <laughs> Wait, in but, Washington? Uh, in Washington, yeah. D.C.? No way. Yes, yes. Okay, so generally, and it's always, it's always, uh, dangerous to talk in generalities really about anything but especially about politics because there are gradations of republicans there are gradations of democrats and there are really still people in the middle they just don't they just don't have a very high profile so generally speaking though it looks as if the democrats are are siding with the biden dol and the Republicans are pushing back against the Biden DOL, and essentially the Republicans are with Fidelity, and the Democrats are with DOL. I mean, that's a very broad, broad brush. But Elizabeth Warren and Tina Smith, two uh, senators, Warren of Massachusetts and Smith of Minnesota, sent a letter to Fidelity a couple of weeks ago, asking the firm for more information about how it it reached the conclusion. That a uh, that a crypto option on a 401k menu is a menu is a good idea, and uh, also for more detail on the safeguards, they're um, they're they're clearly trying to put fidelity on the spot. And you've got in Warren a member of the Senate Banking Committee, and in Smith a member of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. So you have two senators from the two of the three committees that have jurisdiction over. Uh, over financial services, let's put it that way, and retirement savings, are are pressing Fidelity for for more answers. And and what's interesting about Warren is, of course, Fidelity is one of her constituents. I mean, there it is. You can't you can't every time you turn around in Boston, you see some you know some Fidelity signage. So there she is going after her constituent with you know hammer and tong. And then on the other side, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama introduced a bill that would prohibit the DOL from banning certain uh, types of investments in retirement accounts. Now, Tuberville is is probably overreacting because DOL, in fact, didn't ban cryptocurrency in, in retirement accounts. It simply said that the plan fiduciaries better think about it very carefully. And if you use it, we're going to audit you. <laughs> but they didn't say don't do it. But that's an important distinction here. In fact, it's not even clear that they could. I mean, there are sources who say they, they can't ban a certain time of investment under ERISA. That's not the way ERISA works. So that's where we are. There is political tension. And the, and the, and the financial advisors I've talked to are, for the most part, wait and see on this. They all say there has to be a lot of education before uh, retirement savers use crypto. And, and they want to see more, more details on, on how the, the product would work. So there is some, some hesitancy among advisors generally. On some level, Mark, does this feel like where the fault lines often are? I mean, I think if we, if we sort of took out crypto or the retirement savings language and inserted something like private funds, I feel like we would have people sort of clustering in similar policy positions. Is that, I mean, does that feel right to you? Yes, it does. And and having just warned against generalizing when it comes to politics, right. I'm about to do the whopper <laughs> of generalization. There, there is there is a 
a difference in how Republicans and Democrats approach financial regulation, and it is this. Democrat, most Democrats tend to be paternalistic, and they want the government to be deeply involved in protecting investors. Now, before Republicans at me that I'm not saying Republicans don't believe in 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 investor protection, but Democrats want it done through government regulation, through an engaged DOL, an engaged SEC. Republicans view investor protection as uh, disclosure, and and as far as Republicans are concerned, that's that's where it stops. In other words, government has to guarantee that the disclosures are there and and investors understand what they're getting into, and then it's up to the investors to make their decision in the market to work. So in, uh, Republicans uh, tend to to uh, lean toward the market, letting you know giving the market free reign with disclosure. Democrats tend to lean toward getting the government involved in ensuring that retail investors, Main Street investors, are protected through government actions. Action. And there are probably you know political science professors out there just shaking their heads, but basically that's the way it is. So so that's that. So yes. So whenever it comes to a so if if you're talking about complex products, you know Republicans are saying. Hey, disclose the features, but then it's buyer beware and let the market work. Democrats are saying, "Ah, hold on now, we we actually need to, you know, increase regulations surrounding the 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 recommendations of complex products because you've got investors who are who are buying inverse ETFs and holding them for 180 days instead of two days." And and Fenra needs to do something very specific to stop that. Republicans will say, no, no, Fenra doesn't need to do anything specific to stop that. They, they it just needs to ensure that you know brokers are disclosing that uh, these should only be held for the short term. Well, Mark, I think you're segueing well into our second topic of discussion today: a, an extended regulation uh, that came out. What was it, Kurt? Two years ago. We're into the terrible twos here, I think, that we'll talk through the regulation best interest. Kurt, I know that you are the the pro, at least on this podcast, in terms of the co-host with the knowledge here. Why don't you talk to us a little about where we started and where we're at? The terrible twos. Wow. That's wow. right. I, I didn't Hopefully that takes off and everyone starts referencing it. Mark, you know, feel free. That, a title for a future article about uh, Reg BI. Yeah. Well, it, that, that was almost the... <laughs> the headline for the cover story I did about a week ago. That's right. Yeah. 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 So we're going to talk a little bit about Reg BI. Of course, Mark Mark has written on this extensively over the past several years and including a couple of recent articles. He had one called Reg BI Turns Two, but not everyone is celebrating, which I think is I think is what you're referring to to referring to there, Mark. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Reg BI is two. It's been it's been two years, just about two years since uh, it was implemented, and firms were expected to comply. We have talked about it a little bit on the show. I don't I don't want to you know overstate it. Just maybe fifteen or. 
20 episodes. <laughs> I've lost count, in- including one with, with Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, if you want to go back and listen to episode 40, which, Chris, I don't know if you knew this, was actually cited in a couple comment letters to the SEC. So I don't know if that's a good thing or wow. a bad thing, but there you have it. We've, we've made it. I don't know what uh, yeah. it is, but we're there, Kurt. <laughs> so uh, Reg BI, for anybody who hasn't tuned in or doesn't know, essentially established a new a new standard of conduct for broker-dealers who are making recommendations to retail investors. At a very basic level, what it required them to do was to have their investors, the retail investors, best interest in mind when making a recommendation. So that means things like disclose, disclosing or eliminating conflicts so that the investors are kind of getting the, the, the best product or best recommendation available to them. Of course, sitting alongside Reg BI was a requirement for investment advisors and broker dealers to submit to the SEC and provide to investors something called Form CRS, which requires them to disclose a, a lot of things like how they are compensated, existing conflicts, things like that. But we're, we're going to focus today on the Reg BI piece of this. So, you know, Mark, we've said it, we're two years in. How has the industry adjusted i mean are they are they actually doing things to implement the the requirements of reg bi it depends on whom you ask the compliance officers for brokerages will say yes we've spent an enormous amount of time and money to comply with reg bi and and it is working we have in place the systems that help our Registered reps ensure that they're assessing all reasonably available alternatives before making their recommendation. We've eliminated payments that would incentivize certain products over the other, and we're putting much more care into our recommendations. On the other hand, the state securities regulators have conducted a survey uh, last fall that where they concluded that Broker-dealers are recommending expensive, risky, complex products in the same way that they always have without curbing incentives for registered reps to, to push them, and they're, and they're recommending them to the detriment of, of their customers. So at, 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 at two years old, the, the same debate is, exists over Reg BI that we've been having really for more than a decade, and, and especially since Reg BI was finalized in June of 2019. Some people think Reg BI is three years old because the final regulation was released June 5th, 2019, but it was implemented. It went into force June 30th. 2020, we, we still have the uh, the same debate going on. And, you know, on one side, the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, SIPMA, which is a major trade association representing the financial services industry, is saying we're we're on track with Reg BI. Consumer and investor advocates are, are saying we're no better off today than we were before Reg BI was was created and and the SEC is saying it's too early to tell there 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 was an SEC official again at the IRI conference last week on May 19th who essentially said it's too early to tell which I was happy to see or to hear that because that means that my story was right down the fairway <laughs> that that it, because that was the conclusion of my story essentially it's too early to tell and no one agrees on whether it's working and 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 a lot of people say more more needs to happen because it is a big change of culture for broker dealers who've been used to transactional 
mostly transactional relationships with with customers. So it's it's wait and see with RegBI still. Yeah, and maybe a question for the uneducated RegBI follower on the podcast here, both Kurt and Mark. I mean, if you would have known two years ago that we'd be kind of in this muddy water, kind of, like you said, in the middle of the fairway on effectiveness or implementation, mm-hmm. you know, two years hence to the regulation coming out, would that be expected? Would that be seen as a failure? Or, or maybe there are some successes there that we're not bringing up. I I have to say that I'm... Let's put it this way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the too early to tell category in one sense, and that is we might not get the first substantive Reg BI enforcement case until later this year. And, and by substantive, I mean not the you know, CRS enforcement cases against firms that missed a deadline or left information out. That's low-hanging fruit. That doesn't count. I'm talking about a Reg BI enforcement case involving a, a, a recommendation that was made to a customer by a brokerage that was not in that customer's best interest based on what Reg BI required. That's the enforcement mm-hmm. case I'm looking for. And if that doesn't occur by the end of the year, I will be surprised. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that there have been a few, I think there have been more than 30, actually, so more than a few enforcement cases that related to form CRS. People missed a deadline or didn't didn't file it with the SEC at all. But we really haven't seen a, a Reg BI case, like you say, the kind that is really centered on a recommendation that, that a broker-dealer made. What do you think that's going going to look like when it comes? I mean, I hear you saying it, it, it needs to sort of be by the end of this year if, if anybody's ever going to think this thing has teeth. But what do you think it will look like if and when it finally comes? That's a question I usually ask you, Kurt. <laughs> but I, I will, uh, so I want to hear your answer when I'm done. But but based on, on talking to various sources, my guess is that it that it will be it will involve the lack of assessment of reasonably available alternatives and it will involve a lack of justification for recommending a higher priced product reg bi does not say you should only recommend the least expensive product but it does imply that if you're going to recommend a higher price product or if you're going to put uh, clients into an account that will cost them more, uh, one type of account that will cost them more than another type of account. For instance, if you put them in an advisory account when they would have been paying less money in a brokerage or vice versa, you, you've got to consider cost and you've got to justify the cost. So I'm, I'm thinking it'll involve a lack of, of review of reasonably available alternatives and a lack of... Um, analysis and justification for the the high-priced product or account that you did put them in and that would mean that it's roughly similar to the to the share class initiative cases where you weren't you know these these brokerages didn't didn't uh, acknowledge the um when they uh, recommended uh mutual funds with 12b1 fees and revenue sharing in advisory accounts for clients, you know, it's sort of the same thing. You're not, you're not sort of showing your work, and and so that that's my guess. But Kurt, you're you're the expert. <laughs> What's your answer? Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. I think when we talk about 
what will substantive enforcement look like? Maybe people are imagining a, a big sexy case. I, I don't know that it's going to be a big sexy case or, or cases, right? You could imagine them rolling out a handful altogether to kind of make the point that we actually are we actually are policing compliance with this regulation. But I think it'll be something like a failure to disclose or a failure to justify. You know, why did we choose this particular product or this type of account? I think that's absolutely right. I think I won't be surprised if it's couched in the language of conflicts, right? I think that this SEC is particularly focused on conflicts of exist conflicts of interest that that may exist in the market and they they want broker dealers and investment advisors too but in in this context broker dealers to be transparent about where those conflicts exist so i i agree with you i think it needs to happen this year i'll be surprised if it doesn't but if if you start to get too far away from you know from the implementation of the regular the regulation it's like what what are, you, what are you doing? There's no way that everyone is getting this right. And I understand that the SEC has been pretty consistent in saying that they weren't going to run right out and start dinging people for foot faults. And there's been a change of administration. And all of those things kind of contribute to there not really being Reg BI enforcement so far. But right. at some point, if people are, or firms aren't getting this right, they're going to have to move at the SEC. Right, and I agree with with Kurt. the The disclosure piece, Reg BI requires the 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 disclosure and mitigation of of conflicts of interest by brokers. So, if there is a failure to to disclose or a failure to mitigate, that will likely come up in the first major substantive Reg BI case. What will be interesting is that we'll all learn what mitigation means based on that case unless the, the the SEC puts out guidance on mitigation, which it hasn't so far. But as one of my sources said in the recent cover story, mitigation is more of an art than a science. <laughs> Everyone may do it a little differently and say, oh, that's leg- that's a legitimate way to do it. And the SEC will have to be the arbiter of who's right and who's wrong. But, but the SEC is very much a disclosure-based regulator. So uh, lack of disclosure about conflicts will almost certainly be part of the first Reg BI substantive enforcement case. I, I think that's right. I think that's an, an actually a really good take. Whatever the first enforcement action teaches about the effectiveness or sufficiency of, of mitigation will, I think, probably pretty fairly reveal the SEC's view. Because if nothing else, the exams division has been in there for a couple of years now looking at what different firms have done or are doing to mitigate conflicts of interest. And so if we finally get to the place where you know, the exams team has decided we want to kick this one over to enforcement and enforcement says, yeah, that's not enough. I, I think you're going to know wh- where the line is. Maybe it'll be one that's really bad and you'll everyone will say, well, we knew we knew we couldn't go that far. But maybe maybe it'll be a little bit, you know, a little bit more telling in terms of what they think is just not quite enough. And what I'm looking for after that first enforcement case is a, uh, a hue and cry from from certain sectors of the financial industry saying, oh, this is regulation by enforcement. You never told us, you never explicitly told us that that this particular way, that this particular action would be a violation of Reg BI, and now here you are going after Firm X for it. You know, explain yourself, SEC. I, I can almost guarantee that will come up. 
Maybe even one of the co-hosts of this podcast will be making that defense in a <laughs> coming matter. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? No, you're, you're right, Mark. Uh, and it's actually something that Commissioner Crenshaw talked about when she was on the show. And she said, look, this isn't regulation by enforcement. This will just be enforcing the regulations. You can read what it says. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. That, that won't dissuade anybody from, from making the point. But yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, is that is that enough reg BI for you? Have you had your fill or do you anything else Kurt, that I'll you really you, need you know, to? It's, it's always good to speak with someone else about reg BI besides you. So <laughs> I'll always enjoy, you know, talking to any of our guests about the regulation. It's just, you know, that that look you get in your eye when we start going down the reg BI path is just uh, it's a little yeah. unnerving for me. But <laughs> all right, well, then let's let's pivot. That's that's good. Mark, I appreciate you humoring us, Chris. I, you know, I hope you you got it by now. But if not, we can talk getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So one of the things that we've kind of talked about a little bit throughout the podcast today, we've talked about it uh, in the context of the uh, sort of philosophical or policy divide in D.C. We've talked about it a little bit with reg BI, but it's this concept of complex products and you know where regulators may want to step in or not when firms are selling or recommending them but let's just sort of take a step back when we talk about complex products what are what are we even talking about what is a complex product that's my question for you kurt (laughs) you tell me or chris kurt or chris what what is a complex product and and what's interesting is finra has indicated that it's going to take it's going to provide closer scrutiny of, of, of complex products and it put out this request for information about whether it needs to change its regulatory approach to complex products, especially now that's, that so many of them are being bought directly by com- investors online through online brokerages just doing their own thing in their, in their own accounts. And several of the, of the comment letters that I read said, we don't have a definition of, of complex product. And complex products are, are, are kind of like what the, what the Supreme Court justice said about pornography. Regulators know what they are when they see them, but there's, <laughs> but there's not, a, there's not a, a set definition for them. But you can give examples. In, you know, inverse ETFs, for instance, would, would, be, would be one. Options would be one. Certain real estate investment trusts. Kurt, there, there are others. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good list. I mean, I, I generally, the first place I start when I'm thinking about this are things like options and leveraged and inverse products, which could be ETFs or they could be notes or something else. But yeah, things that aren't, that aren't sort of traditional, you know, I'm investing in a particular name, right? I'm going to go invest in XYZ company because I believe in their fundamentals. Or even I'm going to invest in like, you know, SPY or something where I'm just trying to sort of follow a benchmark. I want to follow the Russell 1000 or the S&P 500. These are trying to give you a little bit more juice, right? It's it's usually more of a a directional play. And I think that's, that's when I think some regulatory eyebrows start to go up. Not because there's anything inherently bad about the products, but because they're just, they have different features and they, yeah, I think Kurt, you define it well. It's kind of being one step away from the 
the action, if you will, or the ownership. You know, you're you're not just owning a stock; you're owning the right to purchase at a later date the uh, the stock at a given price, or you know, obviously all kind of derivations from there on the way up. But that's usually how I try to define complex products too. To those in my uh, uh, friend group and family who maybe are, are a little bit further away from the markets and haven't listened to all sixty-seven episodes of the Insecurities <laughs> Podcast. And and one, I forget if I saw this in a in a comment letter. I don't think Finra said it because it's a little colloquial. But uh, basically, if you have, if you would have a difficult time explaining an investment product to your mother, it is probably complex. It's probably a complex product. That's a really interesting way to put it, and maybe this is just because of what I do, I immediately thought like, well, who is the mother? What, what well, does she yeah, understand? Right. right? But that's, <laughs> an important, that's an important point <laughs> or, for or, brokers too. <laughs> or let's say you're at a happy hour with friends who do not work in the industry exactly. yeah. and, and they do not want a seminar about securities regulation. Mm-hmm. They just want the overview. Would you be able to explain it to a friend at a happy hour? If you can, is there a screen and a projector at this happy hour, Mark? Can I put a PowerPoint slide up on the the screen? (laughs) No PowerPoint. Some kind of happy hours do that, but no, we get it. There's there's loud music, (laughs) and you know, there's loud music. Enjoyable. (laughs) Well, right. There's loud music. The bar is crowded. Lots of ambient noise, and explain the investment product Mm -hmm. to your friend, who is a high school English teacher. Yeah. Got it. I think it. I, I think it's a, a good way to think about it. You know, I, and maybe the answer to my next question is actually just sort of baked into into that description. Or maybe I'm going to run the risk of having the conversation about the political divide again. But but wait, why why do regulators care? Can't can't people sort of buy what they want? Well, you you should apply to be counsel to Hest, uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. <laughs> she she would welcome you under her staff, Kurt, with that libertarian uh, view of the uh, securities markets. So um, that is certainly what Commissioner Peirce thinks that um, anyone should be able to buy anything they want just as long as the risks are disclosed. And basically, that's the Republican approach. Commissioner Peirce is a Republican SEC commissioner. That's basically the Republican approach. The Democratic approach, as I said earlier, is let's have the government more involved in, in determining what kind of investor protections are needed for for those people who want to buy a leveraged ETF or an inverse ETF or a non-traded REIT or an option? Let, let's let's get the government more involved in 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 coming up with some with some some safeguards through rulemaking. Yeah, and Kurt, I think you know talking about why do regulators care? You hit on it earlier, right? It's that product with a I like how you said a little bit of extra juice. You know, there, there can be a higher risk, higher reward, and I think that that's something that regulators are, are taking a look at. So, Mark, you know, you recently wrote an article about, you know, FINRA's next step on complex products. What what might that step or next set of steps be for FINRA that, that has the market thinking about this? Well, certainly the the, the market is, is concerned about what FINRA may do next, and part of, the, part of the way that I detect that is I'm getting these unsolicited pitches to talk to various experts about how FINRA could be ruining the, the, the market for different kinds of ETFs and different kinds of investment products that, that, that customers really need. 
so so that tells you that there's there, there's some at least furtive sweating going on uh, out there in the industry and and when you have a regulator raising concerns about investor harm especially in a market like this and now the market is is tanking you know people are going to be looking for alternatives ways to survive this market downturn better yet ways to make maybe even a profit in this market downturn and that would be that that would be through products that that act opposite of the market and and almost by definition that means it's a complex product so so they're concerned about this 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 hunt for um chasing alpha this chasing alpha idea is, is a concern to regulators about investment what investor harm may come from it what will FINRA do? Well, FINRA is a, often a nip-and-tuck agency. FINRA takes actions that you kind of have to put over under a microscope to see exactly what they did. So it could be something really light, you know, a reminder to firms to always do such and such. Plus, we're going to add, you know, one more requirement or two more requirements. Or, or FINRA could could just come out with an entirely new regulatory regime. I don't think it'll go that far, though, because the industry is already pushing back pretty hard against this, as you can see in the comment letters. And FINRA doesn't go a whole lot farther than the industry ever wants to go. FINRA is a self-regulator. And and so as I look at the comment letters, I'm thinking that FINRA is is probably going to put some more strictures on, on complex product re- recommendations, but it's not going to propose an overhaul of the way that uh, registered reps pitch them to their to their customers. I don't think we're going to see a sea change here, but this is an important moment for FINRA because FINRA can can really prove that it's that it's not captured through what it does with complex products. If it goes if it if it sort of leaves its its nip and tuck comfort area and and really goes for something a substantial change in regulation you know then then all those people who say oh FINRA is just captured by the industry I won't have such a good argument anymore so we'll, we'll see what it does well, yeah and usually big moves like that at least in in my experience or my opinion come from the SEC you know that that sits a, a little bit not not on top of FINRA but to the side right. and, and obviously has purview over many of the similar things are we seeing some movement at the SEC related to to what we're talking about with FINRA's response to complex products well the SEC has also raised concerns chairman Gensler and others Chairman Gensler and Commissioner Crenshaw and Commissioner Lee, the Democrats on the commission have all raised uh, concerns about leverage and inverse ETS, for instance. I don't believe there's a regulatory proposal on the SEC's agenda pending. Am I right, Kurt? I don't think there is. No, I don't believe there is. Necessarily, yeah. right. But they certainly are concerned, and and I would be, I would, I, it would be more likely that the SEC would take a more aggressive stance against complex products than FINRA, and we'll see if complex products come up as a proposed, as a pending proposed rulemaking on the next iteration of the SEC's regulatory agenda. It, it's, it's not there right now, but with a Democratic majority, that's where the aggressiveness may come out, unless, unless <laughs> Republicans take over the House and the Senate and uh, Chairman Gensler decides, you know, I don't want to get into a political firefight about this with Republicans on the Hill. 
because if if the SEC does make a move on complex products that Hill Republicans don't like, if Hill Republicans control both chambers, then they can put these things called riders and appropriations bills, which would prevent the funding of certain regulatory projects at the SEC. One of the things that might be prohibited from, from funding is a complex products uh, rulemaking, for instance. Mm-hmm. And even though President Biden, of course, could veto an appropriate bill that has a writer like that. Who knows what will happen when these big uh, federal budgets are negotiated? Mm-hmm. You know, some of these writers could slip in because they're used as bargaining chips and mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. So, yeah, so it's all a political – it all comes down to politics. As, as um, the, Perhaps my favorite subject is the politics of regulation. Regulation is a political decision, period. I just, I, I sort of get, I almost want to scream when somebody says investor protection <laughs> is bipartisan. Investor protection crosses the aisle. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's a political question. You have to have political will to implement a regulation. And the question is, will the political will be there if you have a Democratic SEC and a Congress completely controlled and maybe controlled by wide margins by Republicans? Let's let's talk a little bit about the the rulemaking. Then you know you, you've talked about whether or not we might see something like that with respect to complex products. Maybe we'll see it on the next agenda. Maybe maybe we won't. But the agenda that Chair Gensler announced last year is pretty deep. <laughs> there are there are quite a few things hanging around at the moment. Uh, you wrote on this recently as well, talking about things like climate risk disclosures, private funds some proposals relating to exchanges in the U.S. So, you know, in your view, what are some of the some of the hot topics from a rulemaking perspective that are still in flux? Well, just look at the, the rulemakings on which the SEC allowed more comment time. That will tell you what they're what they see as a particular hot button issue. So that's climate risk, and uh, private fund advisors, and a couple of others. Kurt, you may know off the top of your head what the others were. Well, yeah, I mean, one of them had to do, but, I forget what the specific rule was about the exchanges, but there was one relating to... Oh, yes, the definition, uh, yes, the definition of, a, of, a, of, a, of an exchange. Right. And, the, and the crypto yes. acolytes are concerned that uh, the SEC is going to define as an exchange these different crypto markets, and then the SEC is going to say, okay, that crypto market is an exchange in our view. We regulate exchanges. Now we're going to regulate you. They're worried that it's a a regulatory path for the SEC to to, to clamp down on the crypto market uh, and, and sort of sidestep regulation. So there's just, there's that one as well. So those three are particular hot button. I, I think you look at uh, climate risk and other ESG type of disclosures. That's where where I'll, where there will be some real fireworks because nothing the SEC can propose is going to avoid a legal challenge. I mean, it just it's not. There is definitely going to be a legal challenge on on the climate risk proposal. A commissioner purse basically outlined yeah. for all you lawyers how to do it in her uh, dissent on the climate risk 
uh, uh, disclosure proposal when it was put out in March. She had a, I believe it was a 24-minute dissent. It was extraordinary. It was sort of peak politicization of the SEC, in my view. I wrote a column about it. And uh, that's how the SEC deals with ESG oversight, not only climate risk disclosure and diversity and other disclosures by uh, public companies, but also how it um, deals with the way that investment advisors market and implement ESG for their clients. All these different, that'll be, that'll be the hot button in my view. Well, I, I mean, I know that you've been sort of writing about and following the ESG space. So we're, we're sort of sitting in the rulemaking segment here, but let's just set that aside for a second. What, what's happening other than rulemaking with respect to ESG? Because I suppose that's not the only thing the SEC can do to make a mark. Well, right. So the SEC is, has its, in, its enforcement, ESG enforcement task force has now released two cases, announced two cases, one against a Brazilian mining firm about a week ago, and then one today on the day that we're taping, May May 23rd, an enforcement case against an investment advisor for, for the way that ESG was marketed and implemented for clients. So we're going to see the enforcement task force continue to, to make noise. And there's, you know, basic moral suasion too. I mean, the more that the SEC talks about climate change, the more likely that market participants are going to are going to focus on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Mark, that we need to, to jump into here on the rulemaking side or, or any of the topics we, we've discussed today? I, I think that pretty much covers the, uh, the, the, the waterfront. I would just say on, on rulemaking, th- there's been a dust up over the amount of time that, that stakeholders have to respond to these requests for comment. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an, there's a, you have to read between the lines on that. You have trade associations and other organizations saying we need more time to comment because these are complex rulemakings. It takes a lot of time to write a good rule, a good comment letter that covers all the different questions the SEC asks, and that's true. It does, but there's also this element of you know the opponents of of particular rulemakings want to stretch out the rulemaking process as long as possible. So they want 90 or 120 com, you know, days to comment mm-hmm. because the longer it takes the S, because the longer that deadline is, the the longer you're stretching out the rulemaking process. And it and under the best circumstances, I mean under ideal conditions for for rulemaking, one year is about as fast as you can go. Yeah. And and if you can stretch out a rulemaking to a year and a half, two years or longer. All of a sudden, we have a presidential election, and maybe you don't have to deal with Gary Gensler anymore, and the rule's not final. So that thinking is also going on in the back of the minds of people who are pushing for longer rulemaking periods. Don't don't forget that. Now, now, the, so it's a little of both. But but the, but the people who are complaining about the short comment periods, they're right. It does take a long time to write a good a good a good comment letter. They're not wrong about that. But just keep in mind that they really some of them really want to push it out there. I mean, 120 days would be great uh, as far as they're concerned because that just slows everything down. And so what Gensler did, you know, at the beginning of his 
he's been in office a little more than a year. And a few months ago, he was really pressing for 30-day comment periods. You know, Gensler wants to churn through these things because he knows that four years is a short amount of time, assuming he, he stays all four years of the Biden administration. If he stays fewer than that, he has even less time uh, as head of the agency. But even if he stays the full four years, that goes very quickly because we're already done with 14 months of of his term, assuming he stays all the way till the end, and he he will definitely be out if if a Republican is elected in 2024. So he knows this, and he wants to get through as many rulemakings as possible, and so he was pressing for 30 days. Now he's he's stepped back and he's allowing 60 days for almost everything, at least 60. Mm-hmm. And his his thinking is you get 60 days from the time that the that the proposal is posted online, which is usually the day it's released, or 30, 30 days from the time it's published in the Federal Register, which could be a couple of weeks after it's posted online. But the bottom line is, basically, you're going to get at least 60 days. He's at 60, but a lot of market participants and other stakeholders want more than that. Yeah, it, it's definitely been interesting sort of watching. I, I've been on the sidelines of these. I haven't worked on a comment letter for any of these particular rules, but you know, I, I sort of see both sides of it. Having written the comment letters before, you absolutely do need time to to write a good letter. And depending on who you're writing for, there may be an awful lot of constituents you need to kind of pull together to come to a view on what it is that you actually want to say, especially when some of these proposed rulemakings that come out are hundreds of pages long. You know, you sort of can't attack every little thing that you don't like in those rules. So it's like, what's what is really important? What is the the thing or the three things that we need to go to the SEC and say, hey, appreciate what you're trying to do here, but we think maybe these couple of things aren't aren't appropriately calibrated. Uh, so it takes time, but I, I, you're absolutely right. Like Chair Gensler wants to pu- wants to push his agenda through, and that means things need to move quickly. And four years is not a long time. So it's going to be interesting to see how this this battle continues to take shape. Well, Kurt, I think there's two important things we're taking away as we wrap up here with Mark. And, and thank you, Mark Sheff, for joining us for, for such a great episode. The first is that all regulation decisions are inherently political, Mark. That's what you were telling us Absolutely. earlier. And second... Don't tell me that, it, you know, <laughs> investor protection is bipartisan. No, it's not. Well, it could be bipartisan, but the way to do it is is very different on, on each side of the aisle. Sorry, Chris. Go no, ahead. yeah, that's right. The second thing, Kurt, is you just talked about comment letters are difficult, and oftentimes you might need a resource to help support or at least flesh out an issue that you're writing about in a comment letter. And it sounds like the Insecurities Podcast from PLI is starting to be one of those resources. So any of you out there ready to respond to a very quick turnaround in a comment letter period from from a regulator, be sure to check out any of our past episodes and hopefully our future episodes to help fill those in. I love it, Chris. I think you're actually supposed to drop your email and phone number in there as well. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Text me at five. Yeah, Yeah, we'll get there. Mark, thanks again so much for joining us. Hey, Kurt and Chris, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation. And best of luck to you on this uh, podcast. It sounds as if you're thriving. And may you have many, many more good episodes uh, ahead of you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Mark Sheff of Investment News. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. 
You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.